Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here. It's good to have some visitors with us. Welcome. And um, we weren't here last Sunday, and I keep thinking about that we're actually planning to be away the next two Sundays, and I keep thinking about every time we're not here, we feel like we just really miss something. And I'm glad it is that way. I think it should be that way. As we, looked at this, uh, as we look at this passage uh, we just read together, I see three uh, testimonies, or I don't know if you want to call them conversions, uh, illustrated for us to learn from. Um, I see, uh, the first one I see is, is specifically Paul's encounter with Jesus. I refer to that as, as chief sinner con conversions. And then I also see kind of a, what we think of maybe as more ordinary conversions, and I, I kind of put the ordinary in, in the quotations there because uh, I don't think we should think of them as ordinary, but Timothy conversions, and then at the end we have uh, Hymenius and Alexander, which Paul refers to as shipwrecked um, faith or conversions. So first of all, we'll, we'll think about uh, uh, this chief sinner conversion. Uh, if, if, if Paul was uh, coming, starting to attend, Apostle Paul would have started, I guess he was Saul at that time, would have started attending Peckway Church. And I, I think about sitting down with him, uh, preparing for baptism or something. Uh, you would ask him some questions about, so who are you, Paul? Uh, what do people know about you? What are, what are things that, that, that uh, stand out in your life as you grew up and and uh, he would probably say some things like, you know, uh, before I met the Lord, I, I, was, I was president of the blaspheming club, or um, most li likely uh, most voted to persecute. Um, he was, uh, I, I was really a violent person before I met Jesus. And I'd like for us just, just to think about some verses here that give us context of who Paul was uh, before he was converted. And so we're going to move through some scriptures rather quickly. Um, first one we're going to look at is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through, C three, 1 through 3. And Saul was consenting unto his death. This was when Stephen was being stoned. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. I don't know that many of us know much about what it looks like when you see havoc in a church that they're referring to here. But he was going from house to house, sending men and women to, to prison for following Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So he was able to get letters from the Jewish church, uh, Jewish uh, temple leaders at least, and he carried these letters across Jewish landscape, and when he found these kind of folks, he obviously brought them back to Jerusalem bound, 
and to put him in prison. I think he was actually encouraged in this work by those folks he got the letters from. Acts chapter 2, or 22, verses 3 to 5. I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Silica, Silica, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Now Paul thought he was zealous for God, when in reality, as we look at it, he was zealous for a faulty system that said they were for God, but actually zealously working against true godliness, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Acts chapter 26, verse 11. And I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Now, when, when you have this idea of him going to strange cities, he probably went to far away, even remote places, to try to find these kind of believers. Compelling them to blaspheme, exceeding mad against them. One more passage, Galatians 1 verse 13, for ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Beyond measure persecutions. Wasted the church. Uh, I would guess there were probably churches that died out because of this persecution. So plainly, Saul, prior to meeting Jesus on the road of Damascus, uh, this was no Sunday school boy growing up wanting to follow the teachings of Jesus. This was not who Saul was. He was a violent person. In modern terms, think about Holocaust or terrorist of the church. Well, Paul, in this text, he reminds us he became an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he didn't become that because of being good or being righteous or being appreciated in God's kingdom. He says in verse 16, how be it for this cause I obtained mercy. Mercy there was great for him. If he'd have been here with, with us this morning, singing um, about mercy, 
forget which song it was now, uh, Mercy is More. That's, that's him. It is, it is for all of us also. But as you see in these passages, Paul participated in the execution of, of Stephen. I'm not sure if he threw any stones, but he at least, uh, I think he guarded the coats or something. Um, but he was there, and he watched that take place at least. And it seemed like from that point forward, he was headed down the road of doing everything he could to snuff out this thing of, of uh, true believers. We kind of see him going on a rampage of hatred and violence as he went from town to town stalking Christians. He used whatever means feasible to imprison and hurt as many followers of Jesus as possible, both men and women. And he was ugly about it, brutal towards them. Here in verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into, world, into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I, I, I'm about the worst that you'll find. The worst of the worst. Public sinner number one. That's, that's me, confesses Paul. And we see him wrap up his testimony here. In, in, with, his, with his conversion in verse 17 with just a, a heart of gratitude, of praise, thanksgiving, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to him be glory, honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this morning in, in, in our audience, obviously Paul, the Apostle Paul is not here. But there, there's probably not just real many of us that can identify with, with a, a conversion that is as dramatic as this man's was. And, and certainly as you read a story like this, and there's other stories, uh, it is very, very good of God to reach down and, and touch an evil man's life like Paul's and bring about this, this about change, okay? It's just 100% different kind of person. And, and these kind of, of men and women who are changed dramatically like this, I, th I think they do have a significant, and Paul did, and, and people still do today who are, are saved like this. Their glorious salvation is compelling to us, and it's persuasive of us. It's persuasive when we see and we hear that kind of a testimony. And so Paul rightly says, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. And so while maybe just a few of us can, can possibly relate to this kind of a conversion, I would guess that many, many more of us probably better identify with the Timothy conversions. And again, I, I kind of don't like this idea of ordinary because it's probably not what it should be. I don't want to come across that it's something ordinary um, because from God's perspective, every single conversion is a miracle. And it's a major cause of rejoicing in heaven. But the Timothy conversions, I think if we're honest, they're probably a little less impressive to us. Uh, I don't know that it should be that way. But there's something about a dramatic conversion that's appealing and compelling. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it should be that way, though. 
Someone has said the same grace that gave Paul a great dramatic salvation experience is the same grace that keeps the Timothys from needing such a dramatic change. Now, if you forget about everything else, at least, at least take this one home today. It's also the same grace that was working in his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois as they were teaching and training young Timothy and influenced him to turn his heart early towards this Jesus. Unfortunately, many of us hold up the dramatic, spectacular public conversions as somehow superior to the quiet, less radical conversion experiences. I believe that to be unfortunate. And, and clearly a misunderstanding of how marvelous grace should be understood and appreciated. You see, Timothy had lots of grace that had brought him safe thus far. And we do too. Most of us can identify with that. Lots of believers come to faith in Christ quietly, on dramatically, without fanfare, and maybe not without much audience. But their faith is no less genuine and of no less value than someone who has a spectacular conversion like Paul did. In my years of, of church leadership, this is often the testimonies of our young folks. As we prepare for baptism and church membership, Many, while they know they have begun a journey with Jesus, a lot of them don't really know when it took place. And you know, you, you kind of help them to, well, think about, so you did make a decision, though, for Jesus. Oh, yeah, I know, I, I started the journey. But not sure exactly when, and not a great deal of observable change when it happened. So Timothy, he grew up in a home where Jesus and his teachings were taught and lived by mom and grandma. Probably a third generation believer. And if Timothy was a lot like our people up, our people are, they grow up in a home like he did with his mother and his grandmother uh, urging him to consider Jesus. He may have struggled to also to identify exactly when his conversion occurred. We don't, we don't read about it, do we? To Timothy, it probably seemed like he had always believed. Because faith and Jesus had always been important to him. As long as he could remember. Let's look at a few verses that the Bible records concerning Timothy. And while we certainly don't have as much as we uh, written about him as we do about Paul prior to conversion, I think what's recorded is, is actually pretty significant and instructive for us.
We know from the, the book of Acts that Timothy was raised in an interfaith home. Jewish mother and a Roman pagan soldier, I think he was a soldier, uh, for a father. Acts um, 16 verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek. I guess we don't know for sure that his father wasn't a Christian. But some would say that, you know, Timothy came from the wrong side of the tracks. Biracial. And in his time, I think when you weren't a fully, a full Jew, you weren't much. Half Jew, half Greek. And so I think we learn from this conversion that your heritage, your Freundschaft, your family connections really isn't a factor for God in conversion. God's invitation into the kingdom has no preferences. And he's certainly eager to use all of us despite the advantages and the disadvantages we may be bringing with our culture and background and our traditions. Again, we don't know much about his father, but it's, it's at least possible that dad wasn't much of a spiritual leader. A Greek, married to a Jew. And you know, we, we make a big deal about uh, godly fathers, and we should. Significant as that is, if that was absent from, from Timothy's life, it wasn't a deterrent for faith in Christ. Again, I, I don't know for sure what his father was like. At some time, he was, being a Greek, he would have been an unbelieving Gentile. But we see him growing up in that home, godly mother, godly grandmother, and he was introduced to Jesus. He chose that path. Notice how Paul writes these words concerning Timothy. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, When I call to remembrance... The unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded of thee that in thee also. And the next verse tells us he was taught from the Bible. The next verse we're going to look at. He was taught from the Bible as far back as he could remember. But continue thou in the things. This is in verse 14 of, I don't think of the text. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so I think it's really important that we don't overlook how the grace of God was poured out in Timothy's life. Through Mom and grandma. And if, and if his home wasn't as ideal as it should have been, we see him obviously making good choices in spite of it. And so can we. 
don't know. I have a tendency to come to Scripture with, you know, rose-colored lenses sometimes, and I think that God used God used the you know the best when He um, started out His work, and and He called people like Paul, who was eloquent and could speak well, and He called Timothy, you know, and He just. But God doesn't necessarily use gifted, remarkable, holy, extraordinary people when he calls them to his kingdom. He makes them those kind of people. I think it's easy to forget that in order to become useful in the kingdom, we just need to make the same basic decisions that Paul and Timothy did. Give it to God. Give ourselves to God. The Bible, the people God uses in the Bible, throughout Old Testament and New Testament, were often flawed. They came from sordid backgrounds. Many of them exhibit major limitations. They were often frail in their faith. I thought of Jonah when we were over in Mosul in ancient Nineveh. And I thought about his, his preaching. It wasn't, it wasn't real eloquent, I don't think. And I don't think he even really wanted the people to be saved or spared. But God used him. Another thing about Timothy, he was second fiddle in the band. He, he, he just wasn't Paul. I don't care how you slice and dice it. And if you or I had been Timothy, I wonder if we would have responded as Christ-like as Timothy did. He, Timothy, he was always second string. I mean, he was, he was Paul's representative. Paul refers to him in the text we just read that he's his son. Why didn't Paul call him his brother or his equal in the laborer, son? And, and Paul uses some words here that I think kind of may have been a little hard to digest for Timothy. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 and 17. Wherefore, this is Paul talking to Timothy. Wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you, Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of whose ways? Paul's ways, right? My ways. Which be in Christ, thank you. As I teach everywhere in every church. So, I don't know. Hey, Corinth, I'm sending Timothy to you so that he's going to remind you of me. How I live. Just, just let him point you to me so that you can learn how to live. He can point you to Christ, but let him point him to about me, talk about me. I don't know. We don't ever read that Timothy struggled with this instruction. But on redeemed flesh will invariably grasp, grasp to be first string, not second. 
many times, most times, as you think about the roles that God has you functioning in, many times that's where we find ourselves, second string. We don't get to have it our way. We are called to live in submission all the time. We talked about that in our Sunday school lesson this morning. So. Jesus gives us an instruction, an instructive illustration of this in Matthew chapter 20. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And it's not talking about being your preacher. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So what's, what's, what does chief servant, what's that kind of a role look like in your life? Chief among you, let him be your servant. Now, we're probably not going to be asked to give our life, our physical life, as a ransom for many like Jesus did. But we're supposed to take some instruction on how he did that. And if we plan to be really valuable in, in the kingdom, it will be a life that embraces a lot of sacrifice, a lot of humility, and yes, often playing second string. The biggest danger for many of us who have the Timothy conversions, people who are raised in a Christian godly home, have multi-generational godliness in their heritage, I think is that of just simply becoming a nominal Christian. Okay, we didn't have the, we didn't have the dramatic conversions like Paul did. And I think, there's, I think there's danger of us just becoming, well, satisfied maybe a little bit like dad or grandma or how they did faith rather than actually going all out for Jesus a nominal Christian is one in name only lacks genuine authentic faith and trust in Christ so those of us identifying with Timothy conversions I think we need to become increasingly grateful for exceeding faith or exceeding grace that came to us. Paul recognizes that it was a lot of grace. But I think we tend not to think about it that we also got exceeding grace. To be frank, the ordinary Timothy conversions is the kind of story that every Christian parent wishes for their children. Children who are nurtured in the faith from infancy, where they're encouraged and led into faith at a young age, and where they never tasted the depths of sin. Sin's consequences and reaping that's what we hope and pray for. A 
And so the next time you read about or think about Paul's dramatic conversion, and you think about Timothy's more ordinary one, you might want to think about praying that your children find and embrace faith more like Timothy did versus like Paul did. Let's move down now to the third point, tragic shipwreck conversions. And Paul uses the illustration of Hymenius and Alexander in verses 19 and 20. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about these men. It seems obvious that they were influential in the church, possibly pastors, uh, certainly teachers. And Paul assumes that the church will know them when he mentions their names, when this letter is read to the church. And one of the reasons I believe that Paul gives the detailed qualifications uh, in chapter 3 of, of this letter, um, which we'll look at in future messages, is because it is really important when a church ordains leaders that they appoint men who are sound in doctrine. And chapter 3 spends a lot of time looking at that. Later in 2 Timothy, we see Hymenius mentioned with a man named Philetus, and he was another false teacher. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more on godliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So that's what this Hymenius and Philetus were involved in doing among the church folks. We have Alexander, uh, a metal worker, uh, mentioned in, I think it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, we don't know if this is the same Alexander or not, um, but there is an Alexander mentioned again in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But those who have made shipwreck of their faith are really sad, sad stories. Something tragic has happened. A shipwreck is a vivid word or a picture of total disaster at sea, being crushed and broken and destroyed by, by the waves. Now, it's likely that, that both of these men had, had one time uh, been in the church at Ephesus, uh, and maybe, I don't, I don't, we don't know a lot about them, but we do believe that they were men who had been preaching the truth at one time and now are not. And you remember back in Acts chapter uh, 20, I think, Paul predicted that such grievous wolves would come from within. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, the passage here records that these two men were handed over to Satan. We have this phrase, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I find it interesting that Paul was doing something here, uh, taking people out of the church because they were causing blaspheming to occur, and that's what he had done to the believers back in some of the other passages we read earlier.
But anyway, these words are loaded with just sadness and extreme disappointment. Uh, and, and just awful words, actually. Handed over or delivered onto Satan. In our, in our tolerant culture, uh, we, we would quickly say that this doesn't sound kind. This doesn't sound nice at all. This doesn't sound like things Jesus would do. Shouldn't we just uh, be a little kinder here? No, we cannot be. When this occurs, this needs to be dealt with because false teachers and false teaching hurt people. It might be okay to let it slide if you don't love people. And people will say, well, this doesn't sound like something Jesus would do, but it does. It, in fact, it sounds exactly what Jesus did. Jesus often confronted false teaching very, very aggressively, very aggressively. Certainly not because he hated people, but rather because he loved people. What he hated was the deception and the hypocrisy that was leading people in the wrong path. We believe the church is the domain of Jesus Christ. And outside the church in the world is the domain of Satan. If a person rejects the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus and instead embraces a lifestyle or, or teaching that of rebellion toward that, such choices place that person in the domain of Satan. And I, I just, I think we need to understand that choices like that are consequential, as they were for Hymenus and Alexander here. And it seems like the Bible is really clear that if a person chooses these kind of, of, of makes these kind of choices, and after repeated warnings by the church, they are given over to the domain they have already chosen on their own. And I think that's what happened here in the church. Because of the cho choices Hymenius and Alexander made, they were simply stating where they had chosen to be in the domain of Satan. In closing, I want us to think about how verse 19, how holding faith and conscience are packaged together. Holding faith and conscience. Holding faith along with morality, ethics. We see them, we, see, we know that we, we, again, we kind of point back to our Sunday school lesson and how, how, you, how the conversation of the wives is so compelling. Holding faith and a good conscience. They're, they're packaged together here. And generally, when one experiences shipwrecks of faith, it doesn't usually happen overnight. It's normally a slow, sure death. Shipwrecks in, in ancient times were awful. You were out in away from land, a far, a, yeah, far from land, and, and your, your ship just broke apart. Drowning at sea, I'm told, and I can imagine, is, is really awful. A lot of times, in a shipwreck like that, you would probably be able to, to 
get something you could float on for at least a while. But you're out there along with the water. And so this description of a shipwreck is something that, that is, it might be a little slow, but it's pretty certain. Unless you can some way make it to land or you're rescued, you're doomed. So it is for those who wander away from the faith, slow and certain. And those who are going down are taking people with them. Just a, a quickly an observation, as you quickly glance over this passage that we looked at this morning, one of the reasons I believe Paul may have given his own dramatic story first was to extend hope to people like Hymenius and Alexander. I mean, if Jesus can reach and save wicked, cruel, damaging to kingdom Saul, Paul, later he came Paul, Surely he could do it for Hymenius and Alexander. And so I want to end this message with just saying this. Tragic stories don't have to have tragic end endings. As long as there's breath, there's hope for a person to turn to the Lord. The good news of Jesus Christ can reach even them if they're willing to repent and turn to him. It's Neil for prayer.